Hello everyone. First day of summer, summer solstice, June 21st. And to report as a meteorologist, because I would like to do, I didn't go to school for meteorology, but we have these constant storms coming in now. And I'm not going to say storms, but the weather is changing. And we must thank Canada and the area of Quebec for those wonderful fires that have changed now the atmosphere for the United States. And I think what happens is as the atmosphere is changing, this part of the East Coast, and then we've been dealing with different weather, and you know, we get we get constant messages. Storm advisory, uh, air levels are not clear. Do not go outside. This is like this is now feel like another lockdown. So just to let you know, we're in our caves again, hiding from all that smoke. We're getting some good days, but we haven't felt that heat yet of summer. Those that have experienced New York know that when summer kicks in, it gets real sweltering. But right now, it's kind of cool still. But Welcome to True House Stories. I am Lenny Fontana coming out of New York City. New York City, right? And let me talk about New York City for a second. Across the ocean, a lot of the people who live in that small island of the United Kingdom are in love with America. And they see New York and this area as like the United States. I remember Italians coming from Italy, coming from Napoli. They came to New York and they would be like, I'm in America. I says, no, you're in New York, not America. America is this big, big country. Two ears, a heartland in the middle, all right? And as this heartland we talk about always, we always somehow go back to the Midwestern area of Chicago, right? Where Frankie Knuckles and Chippy and all these great DJs like Ron Hardy were smashing records. And, you know, not not saying special, but they were doing each and every week playing and beating that, what they would call beating that box to the 4-4 sounds of what became known as house music. As that house music crossed over the Atlantic, transatlantic ocean, and it came into the United Kingdom, there was a love affair that was starting to happen. People like Graham Park at Hacienda and all around you know, your Tony DeVitz and all these DJs that were from the old era, the first, what I should call the first part, the love time of, the summer of love. Those that went out to Ibiza, Oakenfold, Danny Rampling, got the buzz of the acid house movement and brought it back over from hearing DJs like Alfredo, right? So I always talk about this thing called the beginning, like Genesis, in the Bible, there's always the introduction of Adam and Eve, right? The same goes with music. There's always a beginning. We're going to bring up a special gentleman from the Welsh area of Wales in Cardiff. His name is Craig Bartlett. And even him, he had a love affair with the United States of America. I say U.S. of A. You got to realize something. England's a small island, but it acts as like if it is the size of America or the size of Australia in its mentality, but it is small and surrounded, right? So when something starts to click in one area, 
it starts to move around, which is why I was able with many of my counterparts was able from all the way down in Plymouth to all the way up to the top of Scotland was able to tour because when something really gained action, like this music called house music, part of it Chicago, part of it Detroit, part of it New York, you know, and, and so forth. And then of course the UK embracing it. And this young fella, Craig Bartlett had a dream around 1990 to, to, to slice a piece of America, bring it in to the Welsh kids, because they would be kids. Now they're all grown up, some are granddads. But at that time, they were clubbing kids. They were fresh. And when I mean fresh, he was like, you know what? I need to do what I'm seeing all around. Because in those days, it was all about magazines, pictures. There was no internet yet. There was no selfie cameras. So whatever you read about, there was no internet as we know it today. Okay, think about that. It's 1990. He creates later on, and he's going to tell that story, a brand that became famous around England through DJ Magazine and MixMag. They would come and take photos in those days. And this brand is called La America. And the reason why I asked him to come on, because it's the 25th birth year anniversary this year. He started in 98. But his story goes back to 1990, breaking it all down. We'd like to welcome to the show Mr. Craig Bartlett. <laughs> what a welcome, Lenny. Thank you very much. I've never had such a, a raucous introduction to anything in my life. Fantastic. <laughs> Love that. Young man as well. I'll I'll fixate on the young man because... Uh, Everybody's job is always beginning, brother. It's always, always a beginning. beginning. No, it's really it's a it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure, and it's quite humbling, really, to be able to come on and just for people to put up with me, my accent, and listen to my story, really, because it's <laughs> it's lovely to be uh, included in the plethora of amazing guests that you've had on recently, which is uh, which has kept most of us going. Like I said in the introduction to you when we were chatting earlier. Gave us that connectivity and a bit of history and understanding of why and who and what we're doing and why we do it, really. So uh, I appreciate all that you do. Well, that's why I bring on promoters and DJs, because people like to also understand what makes someone like you, who's who's a fanatic of the music that loves it so much. Why in the hell would you want to step into the promoters game? You know? <laughs> because it's just there's a lot of drama that comes with that. You know, it, it was it was an accident, really. I mean, I was a DJ, like most people that I know around the world, just obsessed with music and collecting music from the the soul funk and disco of the seventies and eighties. Listening to my mum dancing when I was a youngster to the the most amazing LPs as it was then. And I used to, my grandparents lived in Coventry, which is in the Midlands in the UK, just just by Birmingham. Right. And I used to spend the summers record shopping because my gran and grandpa had the most amazing record deck. And I just used to buy records and I just loved music. So I started DJing just by chance, really. Friends of mine were really interested in music. They had belt drive turntables. They were moving on to Technics. So they were selling these Citronic, I think they were, a, a dual belt driven, like a mobile disco DJ would have back in the day and I just started DJing because no one else, everyone else wanted to have a good time everyone else wanted to dance and have fun 
apart from this weirdo, generally, that would be in the corner playing the music for everybody. And that was me. I was the weirdo because I had all the music. Um, and then, of course, when you start meeting like-minded people, parties organically start happening, whether they're legal or illegal. That sort of summer of love, then into the late 80s and us getting into music. 1990, I started feeling pretty comfortable, for want of a better expression, being able to stand behind two turntables and mix two records and sort of play to a crowd. That was the very, very, very beginning. And that was the, the reason I did a first party, because no one wanted to put me on. And I wanted to play in clubs. I really, really wanted to play music. But at that time in the in Cardiff, which is quite a small city, really, in the UK, it's a capital city, but it's only like 500,000 people. So there's probably more people that live in Brooklyn, the Bronx, Queens, Jersey, in their own boroughs than oh, live, yeah. oh, live yeah. in, in, in my city. So, so hang on. So you talk about wanting to go play for someone else. In yeah. those days, what was the conditions? Did you have to give pre-recorded cassettes or would you have to go try uh, that, Yeah, that, that was the sort of... In Southway, we were aware. I was very aware of the clubs around the country because I would go clubbing myself, generally to London. I would go and visit Paul Trouble Anderson's The Loft. I'd go to the Ministry of Sound when that opened. And I was looking... I was more leaning towards London because, as you mentioned earlier in your introduction... The scene in the UK was Manchester, the Hacienda. There was Liverpool, London, Birmingham and the Midlands started, and Scotland. Scotland was way too far because the access to flights and travel were, wasn't as it is now. There was no internet, as you say. We weren't getting into mobile phones until sort of the very early 90s. So it was, as you say, it was Mixmag, DJ Magazine, ID, Face, those kind of monthly magazines that you'd be waiting to arrive to see what events were going on and where you could go the next month. Um, and we sort of started going to these nights, the Hacienda, to see Graham Park, and he'd bring over Todd Terry, Tony Humphreys, on a Wednesday night, on a Friday night. You'd go to London then, you drive from Manchester down to London to go and see, go to the ministry, because that didn't open until 12 o'clock. In Cardiff, Nightclubs shut at one o'clock, right? And until until the sort of mid nineties, until the legislation changed. So you're talking the first nights we were doing in Cardiff were yep. eight, eight p.m. till one a.m. and we had to get a special extension from the licensing authorities, the government, to allow us to go till one o'clock on the proviso that nobody drank after eleven o'clock. Because that was back in the days when pubs didn't open on a Sunday. They weren't allowed to. Easter and all religious holidays, there was no licensed premises available. So it was crazy, crazy archaic times, really. And um, it was really difficult to get the music that we wanted to play into the sure. main, mainstream venues. Because unlike New York, unlike Manchester and London, that had proper nightclubs designed for music, house music, our music. All we had in Cardiff were, and I'm not being judgy or trying to be disrespectful, but they were, for anybody that's called Tracy or Sharon, they were called Tracy and Sharon clubs because it was generally populated by 
people that were just out on a Saturday night to, so, to dance, dance around their handbags. So would you categorize it more as your ritzy nightclub? That's the that's what I'm trying to say. Very, very PC of you. Yeah. So it, it was the ritzy style chain of formulaic music, pop chart with some slow music at the end so everybody could have a smooth. Don't you want me, baby? Hey, all of that, all of that kind of thing. <laughs> so it was very difficult to oh. convince owners, managers, that house music was where it was at because at the same time, the after the 89, the 90s, it was the birth of the Acid House M25 Blackburn rave scene where... The government were just outraged at the amount of young people wanting to go out of a weekend and uh, take additional stimulants to get them through the events. Stimulants, so there was a bit. There was stimulants. I'm being PC. So no, there was, there was an issue. We've been always clear on that. Everyone had gear. Gear. Had gear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Assistance. Assistance. Whatever you want to call it. Gear. People drinking water <laughs> and they were staying up all night. So. Um, it was very, very difficult, challenging times because nobody would touch what they would call drug music. That the owners now were not having that. We want people to come in and drink, and they weren't interested in people just drinking water and having a good time. So I put my own night on because nobody else would put me on and allow me to do it. And it was called the Big Apple because, as you said in your introduction, it was about getting the message across to the minority of people that we knew were really into the music uh -huh. that we were sort of into. And I took over a hotel, uh, the reception. It wasn't the greatest hotel. It wasn't a busy hotel. They didn't have anything else on. So we used the function room. We put a sound system in. Great night. You know, a couple of hundred people playing house music. And I invited uh, Rocky and Diesel and Clive Henry, who at the time were behind the counter in Flying Records in Kensington Market, in London, where I used to buy, apart from Uptown Records, Black Market, a lot of my music. And they were getting, they were in that boy zone, junior boy zone, flying vibe, which was the sort of the British reinterpretation of US house music. It had mm -hmm. a British edge, all those big records that Terry Farley and Pete Heller. Rocky and Diesel Express 2, and where all that came from, that melting pot of create, creativity of reinterpreting that American house vibe in a British way for the British audience sort of captivated me. And I was like, we've got to try this. And that's where it started, really, the promoting thing. I never intended to do it, but it was because nobody was interested in listening to me, DJ, if I wasn't playing, you know, Soft Cell, Tainted Love, or whatever whatever was popular in the the, the the charts at the time, which was a, a big thing back then. You know, we used to record the charts just to see if there was, I remember Steve Silk Early being on top of the pops and having to record it because he was such a, you know, a breath of fresh air, Marshall Jefferson and those sort of things. So that's how it came about really. And that was 1990. And I was really fortunate then. There was a couple of other like-minded individuals, Henry, who gave me an opportunity in a, the Students' Union, Cardiff Students' Union, a very big fan base of young, upfitted people that came from all over the country that have brought their experiences and um, their love of dance music from their cities into our city because they might have been from London, Manchester, because it's a very 
it's a famous university for a variety of subjects mm. in the country, Cardiff University. It's, sure. called a, it's called a red brick university. So people really want to come. So we already had a captive audience. So um, the enter they, and at the university, they had an entertainment department whose entire being was to keep the students happy, engaged, and keep them spending money in the university. So we set up, they set up a night called Spice of Life. And they invited literally everybody who would agree to come and play from Paul Oakenfold, Orbital, um, John Digweed, Sasha, Rocky Diesel, Farley, Heller, all of those UK players that were making waves on the British house scene at the time. Because we weren't even understanding that we could fly people from different parts of the world into the country until Claudio Cocolutu came and played for Italy because we went to the Italian music conference and thought, wouldn't it be a great idea if we got someone like that? And Joe T. Vanilli came and played when he oh, did wow. that Sweetest Day and made big song. So it was a really hodgepodge of DJs because there was no, like it is now, there was no pigeonhole. There was no, it was just dance music then. It was a scene that was fledgling. It was just being introduced to the country and to our city especially. And we were trying to catch up. So Tom Wainwright, Graham Park, Mike Pickering, the boys that were setting... The, the 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 scene in Bur uh, Manchester, John Kelly was very instrumental in the Liverpool 501 club and all of the gallery in Leeds. And we had Dave Beer and the Back to Basics crew, Ralph Lawson, and all of those guys to try and share their experiences to get our lot really invested. Sure. And that, that lasted for a couple of years. And it was literally, it was three pounds to get in. And tickets used to sell for £50 on the night back in 1990, which is incredible, really. It just showed that there was an appetite for it. So, And that's where the promoting buzz came from, really. I started really getting to grips with doing different things. And then it progressed to a really big night called Tempest Fugit. Probably, it is the longest standing, still running in Cardiff, 30 years, uh, I think, next year. And everybody's been and played for Tempest Fugit, all the big boys, big, big, big house guys, your, your Sashes, your Digweeds, your Tony DeVitt, Tall Paul, all the big sort of moving towards the Trans Ferry Coast and Tiesto. It went that way. Right. And America was born out of that. Myself and my DJ partner at the time used to warm up. We always used to play eight till nine or nine till 10 and swap it between us. Then we started doing eight till 10 between us so we could both get a bit of busy dance floor. And then those big guys would come in. They one would play 10 till 12 or 10 till half 11. The other one would play half 11 till one. And that would be the end of the night. And we just started thinking, well, perhaps there's a bit more to this. We're done by 10 o'clock. You know, we can, we've got a bit more to give. So sure. we opened up a second room in Tempest Fugit. Time flies as it then became known and is still known now. We set up a second room where we played all night and we just played the music we loved, house music. Everything from the 90, 95 to 100, up to the 120, 125, everything. That ability to like and be like our New York heroes that had more than an hour 
that were playing all night and you could create a mood. And it was about experimenting with sounds and timescapes so that we could drop the the speed and the tempo so that we could play something Balearic because we were sort of, we were confused DJs, I think, because we were trying to understand the Alfredo Balearic vibe where he could play literally a cow banging a drum and people would cheer and go mad or the most upfront requested record that there is that everybody needed. And we were trying to work out our own sort of sound. And we did that eventually. And that was the birth of America, where the US house that came over from America was reinterpreted as garage, the original garage sound for me and my friends and the Paul Trouble Andersons and CJ McIntoshes and Bobby and Steve's. And we we kept and supported that US house sound. And America literally came about by watching West Side Story and that scene where they're just about to fight and it's la 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 America, la 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 America. Nah, that's cool. That's it. That's and that's it. And I didn't realize at the time that a night had already happened in Leeds where Tony Humphreys played and it was called America. I didn't even know that. They didn't even know that. And I didn't even know in the dictionary, Lamerica is a um, an anagram for Latin America. Didn't know that. And it just sort of came about. The night in Leeds stopped. They did a night in 1990 in the Corn Exchange. And it just developed over a period of about three or four years in order for us to convince the club owners to give us a chance. And I was Independence Day in 1998. And we haven't looked back since. 25 years this year. And that, everyone, is the reason why you keep going with a passion, especially yep. when the passion is so deep. Definitely. Um, My wife calls it idiocy. <laughs> I just keep being stupid, keep making daft decisions. I keep asking her advice and then doing the complete opposite. And she's probably watching, throwing rotten vegetables at the screen right now. We all do that. She keeps saying, look, you're 55 years of age, Craig. You've got to just give it up. Just let someone else have a go. But in my opinion, nobody else is doing what I want to do. They might try to put the same DJs on. But in my opinion, they don't understand the music and the reason why I like the music that I love and the reason why I've been doing America all these years. Because I just want people to have the same feeling that I get when I hear a great piece of music played by an amazing DJ. There's no other feeling like you. I don't care what anybody else has done in their life, whether they've experimented with gear or drink or anything. There's no better experience than listening to a record, hearing those vocals, those chords, or the just the beat and think, wow, that's the reason why I'm still trying to DJ or still asking for people to come and DJ for me to show me and give me that feeling, you know? Sure. But in 1998, when you started, and now you're at the 55th year and 25th anniversary, I mean, I'm going to go back, you're about 30 then. Yeah. Did you actually think that you'd be still doing this 25 years later? No, ne never in a million years. And, it, and you know, it's, it's been a very, very difficult journey. We, we were very lucky when we first started. We were at the beginning. There was only us doing what we were doing. There was nobody else <sighs> And like I said, there was no licenses in clubs. I had to go and stand in front of uh, councillors and committee members and convince them 
and give them assurances that it'd be safe and it'd be enjoyable. We do this, that, and the other, just so that we could get a later license. And you did one of the first late licenses when you played in Liquid. We had a four o'clock license on an Easter Sunday when there was literally nothing else open. That's there was right. No, there was no transport. There was nothing else open. So the entire focus was on us, 2,000 people, because there was nowhere else to go. So obviously, with success and um, everything else, people start doing, oh, he's done that. I'm going to have a go because I like this. And then competition, and it's great because other things happen. And, you know, you put DJs on and DJs get a passion and a desire. And they automatically think, well, I didn't like the way they did that. I'm going to try my own and I'm going to do it a little bit better. And that's great. And then over the years, competition gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. The pie gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And you've just got to learn to accept that your piece of the pie is going to get smaller. And I'm happy with that. And you've just got to adapt to suit. And that's what we've done over the years. You know, I know I'm not going to put 2,000 people in a club anymore. And I'm really aware of that. Whereas 25 years ago, I didn't even think that would be possible. But three or four years later, that's what we were doing for about 15 years and bringing the biggest, the baddest, the best DJs, producers, remixes. Nobody would even heard of, but, but I knew of them and I was just desperate to show them what we'd created. And we were in a very fortunate position at the heyday of America where I literally could have put anybody on. And we did. People didn't even know who they were. You know, the basement boys, if you weren't into music, you were just going for the event. You wouldn't know Teddy Douglas, Spen, Charisma came as a child when he was the youngest of the basement boys. You know, I had the Martinez brothers. They came to my 10th birthday. I think it was the 10th birthday or 12th birthday. They had to have their chaperone dad come with them because they were too young to get into a nightclub. Right. You know, and now look at them. You know, they're filling stadiums. Festivals and stadiums on their own, you know, 15 years later, which is incredible, really. Craig, share with us that formula of La America. You know, you sit down in the beginning, 1998, you start, yeah. you, I want to be a championship DJ, because it's your thinking. Yeah. You might, I yeah, want yeah. to yeah. create this. I want to be the man, because everybody yeah. wants to be the, you know, no. Yeah, everyone wants to be the man. Everyone wants to be like whoever. And at that time, the first event, we made a list of DJs, producers, and remixes that we respected, really enjoyed going to see ourselves, that we would... It was the who would we go to the end of the earth to go and watch? Your Louis Vegas, right. you know, the Kenny Dope. It was that kind of concept. So we made a list. And then it was a case of, right, what do we need to do to get to know these people to convince them to come to Cardiff? And we were very... And I know... Recently, you had a very good friend of mine on Terry Deja Vu. And what we did in the UK, there must have been about 30 of us in different provincial towns around the city that sort of knew each other, but didn't, but were doing the similar same kind of things. Sure, sure. I reached out by chance to a gentleman who's also been on, Bobby and Steve, Bob, Robert Lavinia and Steve Lavinia. Um, they used to organize a trip to the Winter Music Conference 
in America, in Miami. They used to be, they're still held every year. But unfortunately for us, it's not held as in as much esteem as it is, as it was, as it is now. So Bobby and Steve used to get a little crew together of like-minded individuals that used to play at Garage City, a very famous, because I know Bobby was on recently, Bar Rumba was for anybody in the UK into US Garage was the place to be. You, It was there. It was You're right. back, to, back to basic second room. Dave Beer. Hard, hard times with Steve Rain. Yep. It was Ministry of Sound. They were the sort of the epicenter of, if you got on one of those flyers, you were good to go. You've got a bit of kudos, and then everything else would come. But of course, it was difficult because you guys were being brought over. They were bringing all the best American DJs, literally everybody. So we would all go and visit these clubs, and then we would bump into each other and meet yeah. each other and get introduced to each other. Oh, this is Craig. He's from Cardiff. This is Terry. He's from Hull. He's doing a similar thing to you. And we'd be like, really? Yeah, right. that's the thing. Really? 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 Oh, let's have a... Because, as you said, we were just looking at magazines, Mix Mag, DJ Mags, and then as promoters, if we bought advertising space in these magazines, they would come to our clubs, take photos, and talk, right. and say really nice things, and everybody else around the country would think, oh, that's a good place to go, because they've had DJ Disciple, they've had Lenny Fontana, they've had da-da-da-da-da. And Bobby and Steve invited a number of us, all of whom were desperately trying to get into these gigs, right? to, to go to Miami with them in 98. In the March of 1998 was our first year. So there was a number of us. There was Mark and Jamie, the Slamming Boys, Andy Ward and Patrick Smooth from Birmingham. There was Cy and Seth from the Manor in Bournemouth. There was Terry from Hull. There was... Um, the guys from Glasgow and Edinburgh, literally the entire country was covered and coordinated without even really doing it by Bobby and Steve. We would all go en masse to America. And honestly, I cannot thank those lads enough for whom they introduced us to and the platform that they sure, gave they us. they opened up the doors for, they opened, for all of us. And what we used to do then we would all play at each other's clubs around the country. It was called Swaps back then. So I would, yeah. go play, I would go and play in Hull. Terry would come and play in Cardiff. I would go and play in Birmingham. Andy Ward would come and play in Cardiff. It, and we did that. And we created this little network. And then, of course, people got to know about it. Bobby and Steve would have yourself playing in Garage City. And then they would say, well, actually, if Lenny's coming over for two weeks... Have you, have you got an event on next Friday or Saturday? Well, yeah. Would you like Lenny Fontana? Really? From New York? Lenny Fontana, the, the guy that's played in Studio 54, that guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'd be 26 pence, a Twix and a packet of crisps and a, a bus ticket. We'll do it. And that's how we started organising these tours for the big guys like yourself from America and further afield to come and play in the UK. And that's how we could afford to do it and get the concept of promoting U.S. Garage and then around, around the country. All of a sudden now, the parties are becoming word of mouth and everyone's talking mm. and loving it. And yep. then, of course, 
It's bringing the publications with their cameras in. That's exactly right. Yeah, and that's and then, when everything changed. I remember. And then it just the focus was on us then, and it was like, wow, there's this club in Cardiff that right. I'm putting on. And then it took us to the next level. Right. And then the agent started ringing us. Louis Vegas manager. Um, we see you're doing US garage nights. Louis Vega has decided he'd love to come and play. Um, it yeah, because be... he saw the lineups. He saw him because, like myself. Because we, we, the play. That's exactly because we were doing very kindly. Steve Rain was instrumental in helping me. Miles and Elliot, his residence. And all the guests that would go to hard times. I started a Wednesday in an old bank that guys, Victor Simonelli. Um, I'm just trying to think now. Danny Buddha Morales. Um, <laughs> I'm just, there was just so many of these really cool mood to swing. Jo um, there, there was it was every Wednesday night. There wasn't many people there. But because those guys were playing on the weekend before or after and they were still over in the UK, it was literally a train ticket and a couple of drinks. And we were just building up a little repertoire. So then it's, wow, we filled this one place now. We've gone from one event every six months to one event every month. So within two years, I'm doing every other Saturday, 900,000 people in a really cool club called the Emporium and just were allowed carte blanche to do whatever we want. They just said, you crack on, pay us a higher fee, you know, we, you know, we'll, we'll provide everything else. You just provide us with the, um, the entertainment, the promotion, you do everything. You're like, and what? Just provides with the entertainment. And so, so how was it in those days? Was it a bar guarantee or you had a split? Nope, nothing. Absolutely nothing. We actually got, the Emporium for a very, very small fee. And when I say small, it was minuscule compared to what we have to, the lengths we have to go to now to get to get events. Because we, they were doing nothing and the club was getting completely full. So it was a, it was a no, they, I paid for all the entertainment, all the DJs, all the, everything else, all the promotion. They just welcomed everybody into the venue, took everything and they were happy. Um, and I think that's, that was sort of, that must have been 99 we started to that next sort of level of stature when the Louis, Kennys, the bigger players from across the, the, the universe started realising that we had something that they would get involved in. And that brought the whole series of contracts, professionalism, riders, technical riders, Rotary mixers, isolators. It was mind blowing to well, see. Well, that's what I'm going to say. I'm going to say you guys actually helped. You've mind actually blows. helped create a true industry out of it. Yeah, a and, real business. And right? it was just amazing, you know. Business. Just yeah, it was just amazing to see the development of what we were, what we were achieving, and actually DJs, managers, agents ringing us saying he would love to come and play what dates you got free instead of, well, we've only got this date if you want it and it's going to be X amount. They started working with us. And then we kept going. We kept going to Miami every year, year in, year out, for 10 years straight. And again, still, Bobby and Steve, they were doing Zoo Groove events. They took over that fantastic hotel on um, 
is it called Ocean Drive? The surf coma, surf coma, or the beach coma, or something like Shelbourne, that. Shel- no, Shelbourne, Shelbourne Hotel, Shelbourne, all it. of that. Shelbourne, and it was, Miami Beach, everyone. Shelbourne. Yeah. And it was just an inspirational place. We get on the guest list everywhere. We were welcomed everywhere because we had something to offer. And the DJs and the producers were giving us music because they knew America on my team. Oh, oh, oh. It was that kind of. We were brought into the big family, and it was. It was all inspiring, really, to see Tony Humphreys coming up to me with my name and his team on a yellow orange, yellow vinyl, orange vinyl, Sun Kids double pack, handing it to me in the club at Magic Sessions. Rescue me. And you just think, oh, my God. And to this day, that record still gets played whenever I feel like playing it in most of my sets. The likes of Brian Tappert, you know, the track source officiando head guy, came and did a number of sulfuric parties in Cardiff for me because it was my favourite, favourite style of music back then. I just absolutely embraced that really cool, vocal, up-for-it house music style. Do you know what I mean? And I think we were lucky because I did a New Year's Eve party with Brian Tappert live, Jask, a few other people. Nobody had ever heard of them other than us DJs that were obsessed with music. Again, amazing, like 2,000 people going absolutely But bananas. that's the thing. I'm going to say that. See, now, this is the point. You said it. They didn't, the people who paid to come did not know no. the names, right? No idea. No here's idea. The thing. Here's the thing. They trusted you. Yeah, and that's, and that's, we were in a very, very lucky position back then, whereas, as everybody knows now, it's not so much about the brand identity. It's about, unless you're Timmy Regisford, I think, unless you're, you're Louis and Kenny's doing their masters at work, their Brooklyn rooftops, your Danny Crivets and Body and Souls, because they have got this lifelong historical buzz around them that literally they could do anything. We now have to put names and promote reliability they're not just going to trust the name of a brand that's been going some time we have to put a bit of kudos alongside it to get the bums on the seats and i did that for a while i sort of deviated from the love of doing what i did and i sort of fell out of love with it and i was chasing pounds that's the question and i think i was i went through a journey of putting on djs that I'd stay in the office. I wouldn't even go out and socialize with customers because it wasn't my thing. I was just trying to fill nightclubs. Carl Cox, I put on. God rest his soul. Eric Murillo and the subliminal lot because I knew it was popular. When I wanted Louis Vega and Mr. V and I wanted David Morales and Frankie Knuckles. And we did do those events and they were great events. But I had to be... I had to box clever and just, I was trying to promote the brand so that I could get away with doing sure. the, thi- the things that were a bit more risky. And that was a, it was a challenging time. It, you know, we were putting bums on seats. It wasn't enjoyable. We weren't getting the crowd that we wanted that loved the music, that would sing the music back, that would ask for good music. We were getting people that were coming just for those guests and they weren't our customers, if that makes sense. Sure. So it's come, it's come, it's come full circle. So now we're sort of, we're doing smaller, 
more intimate, more exclusive with DJs I want to put on that I want to see. And I'm going back to that. Well, this is who we're putting on. If you like it, you like it. If you don't, well, we're not going to miss you because we're going to have a really good time, whether you come or not kind of vibe, you know? Craig, so how long would you say that period lasted with the La America? Um, um, I'd say it was, I could, I could tell you exactly, it was 2014 to just before COVID. Really, so five years, about five, five years. Five, five years where it was, should we stop doing these parties? I'm really not doing them. What was going on around you musically? Like music, what- it changed. The whole music spectrum around us changed dramatically. US house music was sort of, it was on the back burner. It was tech house, deep tech, techno. It was that sort of, it was the ketamine sound, as we called it. That's what we referred to. It was a mad influx. EDM. 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 (laughs) That's it. And and it became extremely popular. And we sort of took a backseat. And if you go back to 2000... Why do you think... Well, wait. Why do you think EDM became so popular? Because it appealed to the masses. It was very, very formulaic. Annoying. (laughs) And just... When you were coming up, you had trance and techno yeah, with yeah, house yeah. music. Yeah, of course. Yeah. But it didn't knock house music out no. of the box. This they, knocked everything. They sort, of, they sort of lived simultaneously in harmony, like nice neighbors, didn't they? And, you know, some of the better DJs. And um, don't forget, before this, we had the splinter of the UK garage scene where the US house was completely repackaged by right. us Brits to appeal to the urban market because they could see the benefit and the understanding of this is amazing, this sort of sound. If we sped it up a little bit, we're going to get a, a, another crowd involved. So that sort of splintered off some, you know, some of the really good U- UK house DJs went into UK Garage and are still playing UK Garage now. And the US house sort of side of things started to, to dwine a little bit. And, you know, as a DJ myself back those days, I used to work Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, every week. And then you're looking for Wednesdays disappear. Thursdays are non-existent unless you were very fortunate to play the ministry bar in Birmingham with Andy. That would be once in a blue moon. Fridays then started to be, "Mm, it's really difficult. I'm busy every Saturday, but I know I've only got one Friday a month. And then sort of mid-2000s, 2015, the Saturdays are dwindling and you're thinking, hmm, mm. I'm not playing every Saturday anymore. I got, I'm only playing once, once a month. And then you start noticing it. And I think you start chasing it because, like I said, my wife is my biggest advocate, my biggest critic, and probably the reason why I'm still as successful moderately successful as you are because she's sensible and she gets it she sees it through different eyes she sees it through a business perspective a friendship perspective and a an addiction and i think we're addicted i'm addicted to that i want to provide this perfect night i want everybody to have a fantastic time and have that feeling of euphoria when all my friends are together, we're all looking at each other and we're thinking, oh my God, this record, it is, it reminds me of, I can't believe this is a moment in time that I'm going to remember. Because that's what this is all about. It's about making memories and friends. 
And that's what I've been really fortunate enough to do, really, is lifelong friends, people that have come to our events. And it's not me. I just happen to be the one that talks about it. I've got a nice little team around me that literally bend over backwards to get these nights off the ground. And when they're not that successful, pick me up off the ground because I'm so depressed that they haven't gone well or to bring me down from the clouds when I think I'm the best promoter in the world because we've had a busy night. Can, They're the important ones, really. Do you all know right. What I mean? so, yeah, of course. So let me let me say this to everybody. I, I'm into conversion. Yep. You know what that means, everybody? Conversion? I like to convert people. Mm-hmm. I like to bring them to what we do. That was always the job of what we all did as music selectors and and promoters and you know all the people that worked in the nightclubbing field are you able to convert this younger generation to be part of your you know in other words part of the assimilation of being with the older crowd that that are loyalists to to america and, and that's and that's the biggest that, that's the biggest challenge it's legacy building isn't it because there comes a time, and I think our crowd, and if you look back at the timeline, 1998, we had 10 amazing years to 2008. So those which people, is great, which is amazing because now your clubs have 10 yeah, years. 10 years. And you think most of the clientele was sort of 17 to 25. So over that 10-year lifespan, they then get better jobs, responsibilities. They get married. They have kids. They then drop off. And then there's a void. So the legacy building is about the next generation of Mm -hmm. clubbers. And it's difficult because music, as you know, goes in cycles. And when we were sort of dropping off and the music was changing, the legacy was impossible because they couldn't and were resistant to come into our fold or our congregation if you like because that's a yeah, great like a analogy because like it church. is that's exactly what it is and it's a family it's a church it's a family it's where we go we let off steam we praise because we all stand and look at the dj still to this day you know we put our hands we celebrate and we thank it was difficult but i think with the exposure that house music dance music rave EDM, all of that. It's broadened the appeal to a lot of people. Okay. And then, and we are desperately, desperately keen to get people to come and witness and view and see and experience what we do because we know it's friendly, it's exciting. There's an atmosphere this, which is this everybody. This is the problem right here. And that's it's about remembering great nights. I really like people that capture moments, but you've got to be in the moment to experience the moment, not film the moment. Do you know what I mean? They're all bar- worried about, oh, man, I got to get... Yeah, I got to get the picture. I got to get the video. Oh, wait, 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 wait. I got to get a picture? Yeah, yeah. Stop, stop dancing. And I think the other big, 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 big issue that contributed to a big decline in clubbing attendance and audiences was the smoking ban in 2008. Oh, I said the same thing. I was That was a big that was a big big thing because you would have 2000 people on a dance floor listening to the most amazing music, smoking. One person would go, 
I need to go and have a cigarette. And you would see the dance floor disappear because they've all gone outside for a cigarette. And it was, it was, it took us. And it's crazy to think now that you can't smoke in clubs and it's fresher and it's nicer and everybody accepts it. And I love that. But as a smoker, ex-smoker, it was the be all and end all. You'd have a cigarette. It was nice and easy. But to lose an entire dance floor and a, and a, and over a, and a cigarette a, break over <laughs> a cigarette break was crazy because you, you might have just spent the last half an hour working up as we do as US house DJs. And I say US house DJs, DJs that play our style where we're creating soundscapes and journeys. It's not about the instantaneous drop or celebratory peak in a track. Sure. It's about playing music that no one else knows, no one really wants to dance to, but you play it in a way that you get them dancing and you work towards that little treat, that little nugget that you send them every time that sends them into that ecstasy moment, you know, that orgasmic, wow, this is why I'm here. This is, that's the song. And then you play it again. And the best DJs, in my opinion, are not afraid to play the same track number of times in a number of different ways which is we learnt as UK DJs from the Winter Music Conference when those remixers and producers were trying to break records. Sure. We, didn't, we didn't know that's what they were trying to do. We just thought it was a fantastic way of playing great music to a crowd that might not know a record at the start of the night. Well, think but about what was going on there. Yeah. Think about promotion. what was going that's all on. It was. Promotion, promotion, we promotion. Had all these DJs coming to come to one place. Yep. Why not break a record now? Brilliant. Just brilliant. And Just then brilliant. let all of you go home with the vinyl in yep. your pack or whatever off you, you go. got. And off you go. Run. I, run now like, you, you go and do boy, it. You run go like the play. wind, boy. Run like the wind. You know, yeah. run home. That's it. And, That's it. You're thinking, shit, I was there. I saw yeah. what this record did. Oh, yeah. my God. We were all screaming on a dance floor, yeah. right? Yeah. And then you get the double pack. Like, rescue me. Going back to the, the yellow-orange thing. I can remember going, right, I'm going to play the dub, then I'm going to play the instrumental, then I'm going to play the acapella, <laughs> then I'm going to play the main, and I'm going to play it for 20 minutes, and everyone's going to love it. And you think, oh, perhaps Tony Humphries did it a little bit better than me. I need to practice a little bit. Let me ask you. I was going to ask you that question. So when you when you came back to your grounds yep. to try to emulate what you were experiencing, did it work? Over time, yes, because... As a DJ, and I'm not trying to preach to the converted, it's about finding your own style. It's about creating your niche and how and what you do. Nobody wants to see another Joe Classell who's rotary amazing because everyone just says, oh, Joe Classell does it better than you. So what is the point? There's no point being Lenny Fontana because you play music in a certain way. And everybody should have their own niche way of doing things. And it was about finding a way to complement all those styles and the ways in which those amazing DJs interacted and engaged and teased. And I really caught on to the teased. I really liked the idea of not playing the vocal for a couple of hours, but giving them the hook every now and again over a five-minute bongo beats instrumental and just give mm. them the hook so they think they're getting it and i started learning to dj like that and playing two copies of the same record elongating the mix so it sounded different of course it was tragic 
a lot of the time as I tried to learn to do it. And people are probably, some people are probably telling you now I'm still tragic at it, but I still love, you know, one of the records. It's like dancing. You could suck. Yeah, you could exactly. suck. Exactly. But you love but you, it so much. You, you've got to try it. And one yeah, of the right. records that probably people would say I overplayed would be the Ken Lu What a Sensation. Uh, Those beats, that vocal, I would play for 15 minutes. I wouldn't care. I got lost in the music myself. And my rationale for that was that was the reason why I was there doing it and I really wanted to do it. And if it didn't do it, I would be doing a disservice to myself. So, and that's why, that's why I did what I did. Here's the question then. You did it. Did anybody else do it that way? No, not exactly. But then all the guys that I got in our little team, I encouraged them and supported them to find their own style. So they might, they would say, that's Craig's song now. We're not going to play that because Craig does that. I'm going to do this. So we started not fighting. That's the wrong word. But we were sort of trying to establish when we got a, pr- because I also opened the record shop in 1994 as well, just so I could get those imports, those promos, those under the counter stuff for myself and my friends. We would try, because obviously, it was about fairness. I could have played late peak time all the time. But for us, it was all about the DJs, the guests. They would have the peak time. Let's just say it was, we try and get guests to play three hours as well, which was unheard of then in Cardiff, South Wales. It was an hour, hour and a half, and they'd be gone. So we would try and get the guests to play one till four. To really work it. To the really best adjust. Work it. And my ideology was I'm paying them a lot of money. They're coming a long way. I really want them to flex themselves and enjoy the moment and go away thinking, do you know what? That was amazing. So then we would only have nine till one between four of us or three of us. So we would often, one of us would do nine till 10, 10 to 11, and we would rotate. And there was sort of an unwritten rule. And to this day, we've never really actually sort of said, you're not playing that because I'm going to play that. Don't play that at nine o'clock we sort of established within our own little team, if you were playing at nine o'clock, sure. you, would, you would play a nice little groove. And I was desperate to have a team that understood the art of warming up. And we weren't playing peak time bangers at nine o'clock when the cleaner and the bar staff are setting up. I really didn't want... And that's something I'm really, really proud of with America. And I'll hold my hat on. We're probably the only event in South Wales that would be able to start a night at nine o'clock and work towards a crescendo at four o'clock in the morning, you know, and I have a couple of peaks and troughs. Whereas the EDM nights, the trance nights, you walk through the door and it's crazy from the get go. And we were more about that experience, that sort of the foot tapping, head nodding, booty shaking, letting go, letting loose, going mental as the night went on. So we sort of established the framework so we never really spoke about who would play what and when. It was just, okay, well, I'm going to play at 9 o'clock. I'm going to play a load of Basement Boys dubs, mood to swing dubs. I'm just going to get the groove going. 10 o'clock, the DJ would play a couple of instrumentals with some vocal, vocal reprises, vocal. Du- then we'd tease them with a couple of vocals. Then we, Because then, obviously, with the guests that we were putting on, you just think you're putting on you. You can't play any Lenny Fontana records before you go on. It's rude. 
if Louis Vega comes, you can't play any Masters at Work records because it's just like, that's his time, his moment to shine. So we were very, very respectful and understanding of creating a mood. It's the cadence. It's the cadence of knowing how to set that. It is. And it's the understanding. And then, of course, with all the guests and the understanding and the profile and the building, we started doing some residence nights so oh. that us as residents could then take over and go, right, I'm now going to play. Stretch ten, out. Stretch ten, out. I'm going to stretch my feet, my legs, my arms, and I'm going to go for it. And to this day, I still do residence nights. And they're really popular. You know, you, you worry as a promoter that they're not going to engage and encourage a big crowd. But we did one in December. We did a Christmas, an early Christmas party, sold out quicker than some of my big guest events. And to have my residents being able to play, and I generally play first on those now, 9 to 11, because I really want to play and go back to that really nice time in my life where I was a 30-something, a young dad, newly married, excited. That time to recount those memories where everything was amazing and I could just do what I wanted and it was all fresh and new. And I love that time. No pressure. You just play where you want. You play. You've had records for six years and you think, I've never had the chance to play that because I'm always playing at 12 o'clock. I want to play those. And I love doing those nights now, to be honest. I love doing them. And there will be there will be more. Craig, when you're at the top of the game, you know, it's a sad situation sometimes when you're at the tippy tippy top of the pyramid. You know, and and I always say this because the pyramid people will you know fall down and they come up to the top. But in your area, you had a moment where you had captivated. Who was a direct competition at that time trying to stop oh. the success? Are they still here today? No. no. And, and, that's, and I think lots of people try and think it's easy. Lots of people think, and I think they get into it for the wrong reasons. Businessmen with money throw money at club events because they think they're going to make more money. And it, I honestly feel that if you haven't got it in you and you believe it and live it, it's not going to be a long-time success thing because and as soon as it starts flagging, the investment's going to be removed because all they want is a return. The return we want, and that's I include everybody that works with me, Helen, my wife, Darren, Gareth, Quinny, Simon that does everything. My By the daughter, way, great staff, great staff. I know my, da my daughter and a friend. And everybody that's still coming today that were coming 25 years ago or have only just experienced America and are now coming again. They do it for the love of doing it because they Wait, want is, to do it. Is that the that's, that's the crew. That's, that's the, yeah, that's the, the crew. Let's give them a good clap. That's, yes. the that's the 18 right there. The um, a alpha numeric team that puts yeah, up with Craig, of course, fights him tooth to nail on some of the decisions because Helen plays a big scene. She's the boss. Honestly, she's the boss. She's Helen. With, stand without up, doubt. honey. Plie and take a bow. <laughs> she, she does the door. She's done the door since the beginning of the first ever event. She's the one that's been out in the queue, sort of saying to people, "Look, this really isn't for you. You're not going to enjoy it." We don't want to take your money because you're going to be unhappy. Or she's the one that's 
tirelessly saying to people, come on, just come. We promise you, you're going to have a good time. And she's the one that says to me, Craig, stop. What are you doing? Don't do it. I'm telling you now, don't do it. I've told you. And then I do it. And she says, look, I've told you so. And she's like, oh, we've got to book the dog in the dog sitters again because we've got to go out again. What's the matter with you? <laughs> so I but can't see, thank her see, enough. But see, it's all worth it when you look at yeah. the crowd like that yeah. and it's packed in there and you yeah. got that feeling. It's worth it. Yeah. And that's, you know? That was a nice little basement party we did with Mike Dunn. Yeah. And it's just, it's still lovely now for us to be able to encourage some of these DJs to come and play and trust us and you know, like yourself, you travel off across, and people think it's glamorous traveling. Traveling is a nightmare. Let me oh. tell you, it's a nightmare. It's not glamorous unless you're traveling first class and it's or private. And there's not many of those DJs that we know and love that are able and can afford to do that. So it's a grind. And if you actually worked out the time you left your house to the time you go back to your house, it's minimum wage at best, it's minimum wage. And, we, and that's what the point I'm going back to. We do it for the love of it. We're not super rich, but we're rich in experience and we're rich in memories and we're rich in knowledge that people have come and had a good time. And that's all I do it for now. And I only do it because the older we're all getting, the less we go out. I don't really enjoy going to other people's parties now. But last last month, I went to, we did a, a benefit for Bobby and Steve. For, for Steve, bless him, who's still trying to recover. God God bless him. We yeah. still wish you a very speedy recovery, Steve, because we love yep. you. And I played in 93 feet east for Bobby in an amazing lineup. And it was just amazing to reconnect with all those London guys that Bobby and Steve introduced me to many, many, many years ago, from your Simon Dunmores to your Booker T's to your CJ McIntosh to your Chrissy T's to Grant Nelson to all of those boys. And nobody got paid. Everybody just did it for the love of it. And I think right. we're going back to that, yourself included, very humble, not in it to make millions, just so that we can pay bills. Pay bills. So the travelling... It's understanding that you guys travel eight, ten hours flying to start Each with. Plus the, plus the two or three hours you have to be in the airport. Plus the hour or two hours commute to the airport. Plus the delay. Plus the travel and transport the other side. And then it's then again, and then again, and then again. So it's, not, right. a, it's not a glamorous life. But the guys that do it for the love get the most out of it, I think. And I... And I and I still admire that. And I've just, I've just booked John Morales. And I'm not sure if you've had John on the show yet or not. Yes, I, I have. You have. Great, yeah, the great guy friend. is in his 70s, has been DJing for 50 plus years, has been struggling with COVID a number of times, has got some serious health issues. I know. Has agreed to come back to do one last dance because he's so well received and respected in Cardiff. He's paying, listen, to all other DJs and promote. he's paying his own flights. He's paying his own transport because he knows what that's going to mean to us and the Welsh clubbing people to say goodbye to him and give him Is that his last gig? Is that That's his last ever gig in Wales. You're doing the last ever gig in Wales. In Wales on the, Wales on the West on the 30th of September. It's the last time 
he's gonna he's still producing music he needs me to reiterate that he's not giving up Eminem production he's 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 created a brand new studio in Jersey I think uh, which is state of the art he's still gonna be doing a lot of remixing a lot of producing but he just the traveling is just brutal and he's been doing it for a long time like yourself and it's not easy and it's not fun. you know there's a word for that it's called road warrior. Road warrior, yeah, or mental, <laughs> or mental retarded warrior, yeah, whatever you want to call. And that's, but that's, and that's why I still do what I do. When I talk, I'm not going to blow smoke up your backside, but you're one of the DJs that you can talk to and work with and be open and honest and say, look, we're going to get this many people. I've got. It's appreciated because you want to come and play and do your thing because you enjoy it. And there's still so many of those guys out there that still make me want to do what I want to do. So now and make you, it affordable. How do you compete with the big, you know, festival situations providing like Glastonbury? Yeah, you, you don't compete. It's, you can't compete because there's 250,000 people there today until Monday. And even though 250,000 people based on the population of the UK, isn't many. It's a lot of clubbers will be going there. If they're not going there, they'll be having Glastonbury parties in their houses whilst they're watching the amazing live footage that the BBC and all their associated channels put out there. All the YouTube stuff, you know, people watch it. And I think what it does do, the way it affects what we do is we can't do what we used to do on a regular basis. So I simply pick and choose what I can do, where I can do it, based on a a better knowledge and some investigation of what's going on around. And going back to that competition thing, lots of lots of people wanted to be DJs. Lots of people still want to be DJs. And lots of people still think promoting's easy. So they try it. And rightly so. Why not? If you think you've got an angle or a need or a desire, give it a go. Try it. Lots of people do. They do try it. And they don't like it because it's hard work. Like the traveling, being an international DJ, it's bloody hard work until you're in the middle of it and you just think, if I could get a residency every Saturday in Jersey or Manhattan, I'm going to take that every week. And I'm not going to travel around the world because if they're paying me decent money, I can see my family on a Sunday morning. I'm not coming home till Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or three weeks' time. It's very, very difficult. And you got to give up a lot. You give up a lot. to, to Honestly, my daughter, bless her, I was full-time DJing and promoting when she was born. So at 7 o'clock on a Sunday morning, I'm just coming in. She's jumping on me wanting to play. I haven't got the time because I need to sleep. and rest. I missed a lot of the stuff. And God bless Helen. She did everything. Literally, she worked full-time because just in case, if we lost money as a promotion or the shop didn't do well, she had that salary that kept us going on a number of occasions, a number of months when things didn't go. You know, the first year, at least year in America, I didn't see any money. It was just all promotion, promotion, brand build, brand build. Come on, i got to spend this. we got to book this. And on many occasions, we never made money. We lost a fortune. And I can remember having conversations with Helen about credit card bills, where I used to book all the flights, all the travel through. There was a, a really great... Um, Greek travel tour operator. They used to coordinate all the flights and everything. Yeah, I remember and, him. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. everybody. And I used to thankfully pay him with a credit card. And I can remember just upping my credit card limit, buying first class flights and flight shares, 
I've never been able to pay it back. And five, ten years later, Helen's saying to me, I cannot believe you're still paying off that credit card bill. But that was what it was all about, really. We never made millions. I certainly never. We never got to that massive stage where it went on to like your cream fields or your cream fields or your your warehouse project and your park life and all of that. We were just and still are a very humble underground club night that loves US house music, funk and disco. And now our nights, and, and I'm so glad we're still doing them. We had one recently where we went back to the rooftop that you couldn't unfortunately do because the club had closed down. And it was fantastic. It was, we had Michael Gray came back and it was beautiful. We've got the Faith Boys now, August Bank Holiday, Terry, Dave and Stuart. And that's selling really, really well. And people are really invested in it. And then the last, the end of the summer, one last dance with John Morales, then the end of, end of September. You know, the capacity is, the capacities are shrunk. We're doing 350 people, 400 people at a push. And I'm happy with that because we're picking and choosing our people. We're picking and choosing our events around those big festivals in the hope that some of the guys that we're playing are playing music that's being played in those big festivals. And if they haven't been to America before and they're at a loose end and there's nothing on that weekend because we've chosen carefully, they might just have a look and pop their head round the door and go, do you know what? That's not so bad, that. And because the crowd is so friendly and so welcoming and there's no attitude, they can come on their own and have a good time or they can come with a group of friends or as a family or as a couple. And it's just beautiful because that legacy building, we've got my daughter and her friends who are in their 20s to people my age and older than me still coming in their 50s, which is it's a wonderful thing that's to see. It's a beautiful thing. It, it is a wonderful thing to see. And I can, you know, and that's why I can't stop doing it, much to Helen's dismay, and much to that we could be going out for a nice meal or staying in having a quiet night. You're doing this again, and we've got to be out all day. But when it works, there's nothing like it. Yeah, yeah, I know. The sensation, the the reward of something that was imaginative becoming a true reality. Yeah. It's not easy, and not everyone can do it. I've talked to many people. They were in. They dip. It's like they dip their toe in the water, and out they go because it was too cold. cold. That's exactly. That's not for me. Oh no, this is not for everyone to be. No, it it definitely isn't because I think from the outside, for some, it looks like very glamorous. Like you know, we go back to the travel as a DJ when we used to carry record boxes, two record boxes. Your arms become. They get up towards your ankles. You've got a bad back. You're sweated. It's not fun, people. I promise you. We do it because we love it. And we want you to have a good time. That's that's all people need to know. And they need to understand. They might see the glamorous side of us drinking, laughing, having a good time. And hanging around with these amazing celebrities in their eyes. But we're working hard. Admittedly, we're not getting up at 7 in the morning and spending 12 hours digging ditches and all that. But mentally, the pressure of trying to recoup an investment and make sure that there's no issues, nobody gets injured, no one gets ill, the venue's okay, nothing gets broken, damaged. And they, you know, I can remember and I can talk about it now, God rest his soul, because he's gone. We did the first ever subliminal event, and it was a big challenge for me to get um, Eric and the subliminal crew to come to Cardiff. We're talking 
private jets into and out of Cardiff at massive expense. We're talking a massive, massive fee and massive condition. He brought one banner that he put on the front of the DJ booth. That was the extent of the subliminal um, decor. Someone stole that banner, and someone that's watching this might still have that banner in their, in their bedroom, in their garage, right? I had to pay a £1,000 to Subliminal to replace that banner when it was only worth $100 at best. And that ended up in a, almost a court case in solicitors because they, at that time, were quite possibly one of the biggest brands. They Subliminal parties then out of Miami in the music conference and around the world were like the, the defected, the glitter box that the body and souls of now. It was Eric Murillo doing a four-hour set. Amazing DJ, technically just phenomenal. And that's why things aren't easy. Things don't get seen like that when you're being threatened with solicitors because you've had a banner stolen. It's incredible, really. And that was my toe firmly pulled out of the water then, and you think, why am I doing this? Yeah, why, I was going to ask you, why, why are, are you doing, doing this? this? Why? And <laughs> the reason is because you, you want people to have a good time. I want to be able to play music to people because I know what joy it brings me and I know how much fun it is to be involved in what we do for the right reasons. Wait and if, and if we second. get a couple of quid, we get a couple of quid. On line two, we have a caller. The guy, <laughs> the guy, the guy who took some, Eric Rillo's records and the action book. He's got the T-shirt and... And the flyer. <laughs> I'll send you my bank details. <laughs> How serious was that? Did you get stressed oh, out? Oh, I mean... it, was, it was really stressful because I couldn't understand at the time why they were being so forthright about a vinyl banner with subliminal on it. And I even said to him, look, my printer will produce one and I'll ship it to the States for you. And that'll cost me about $200. And they just wouldn't have it. You know, they... But at the time, some people believe the hype, don't they? And they get caught up in the hype and the drama. And uh, it's the same. And don't get me started on agents and agents' fees and agency costs and all of that. Because <coughs> it's, it's a byproduct of our industry, unfortunately, isn't it? Representation and power and control, I guess. Because if you want Eric again, if you want Subliminal again, you have to follow our rules. You have to do what we say. <laughs> and unfortunately, at that time, that's what we had to do. And that's what I had to do. You have to, you know, go cap in hand and say, okay, I'm sorry about that. Here we go. Can we, uh, can we move on from this? And that's what you've got to do as a promoter. I think you've got to, you've got to be okay. that. Okay. So you paid a thousand pounds to squash yep. it. Yep. Did you ever bring him back? Yeah, he came back again, yeah. Was and we laughed about the, it. We laughed about it. Worth all the aggravation and everything? It wasn't really. It was a big expense, but I just recouped that from the next night. I, you know, I negotiated him down a little bit, probably not as much as I paid for the banner, but probably I got 500 quid back off his fee that I paid him before, and I probably made 500 pound more on the door. So it worked out. And I think as a promoter, you can't hold grudges at, They've got, they've got a stance, and if that's their stance and that's their attitude, that's their attitude. You've got to work within that, despite how ridiculous, childish, or immature 
or daft you think that is. You've just got to work around it. Well, that, that was where I was going to ask you. How how do you feel with some of these riders you see? I mean, that are off the wall. Back from D-Dot, I can remember. Most, and when you actually speak to the artists, they don't even know that these riders are being requested and demanded. Jazzy Jeff, he released um, a Soul Heaven album via Defected. Jazzy Jeff in the house. And he started playing some house gigs, but then converting those house heads back to his style of party, block rocking music. So he would play a bit of house because he was really in with big, close friends with Terry Hunter, Kenny Dope, Louis Vega. He was involved in house music and music generally. He came and played, and I got him as part of that tour. A big risk for me to put him in the middle of a house club. And I said to him, I want you to play whatever you want to play. I don't care what you play. I want you to be Jazzy Jeff. His rider at that time was, there was an American bubble gum called Bubblicious, I think it was called, or Bubble something. That's exactly right, Bubblicious. Bubblicious. I needed to provide 10 strawberry or raspberry Bubblicious chewing gums in a bowl, as well as red M&Ms, only red M&Ms. And I was like, really? Yeah, 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 you've got to have it. And I didn't do it because I refused. I thought, that's crazy. When I spoke to him, I, I was expecting him to... and Because when he arrived, he turned up in two SUVs. I had to get him into the underground park, car park of this venue. And there was about 10 to 12 kids with him. Blokes, hangers-on. One of them was, was, was his MC. The rest of them with his friends that came over. They used to do these tours. And he just started filming his Jazzy Jeff series of content for YouTube. Okay. So it, it was all about that. And I said, um, you know, on your ride, it was vodka, tequila. He said, I don't drink. I drink water. I said, you are. And I showed him his ride and he was like, I honestly don't even know where that's come from. Who the hell's rider is this? Because it's not my rider. But this was the sort of control that the agents used to have. They used to make these demands and the technical riders to go along with the riders. Mm. You know, simple riders would be a bottle of spirits, some mixers, some bottles of water and a towel generally. Um, And the more and more the of you Americans that would come over you would embrace the British hospitality of not just a normal bottle of tequila or brandy or cognac. It would have to be three bottles of cognac, three bottles of whiskey, 20 cans of Coke, because tonight, baby, I'm going to get absolutely slaughtered. And I love that. Yourself included, Brian Tappert, British ideologist, American DJs, as we would call them, because you embraced our culture. Because a lot of, and it's, it's not a slant on somebody, but they would come over and drink soft drinks, be very professional, do their thing, and out they would go. Whereas some of you guys, Disciple included, you became adopted Brits. Yeah. And you, you would embrace our, our scene. You would be swinging off the rafters after drinking and necking bottles of vodka and just having the time of your life. And as British promoters, we loved that because we knew you respected us because you were part of us and we were a team. And we still love that to this day. 
And that is why you keep doing what you're doing. That's but, it. you know, and, and I'm glad you answered that. Um, moving forward from now to eternity, where are you taking this La America? Where do you believe in your heart it's going to go? I honestly, I don't know. I don't know how long it's got left. It's event by event at the moment based on our thoughts and our feelings, uh, accessibility and availability of venues. We're limited in South Wales. There's really, really big venues that need big, big, big artists like those crazy DJs that I don't really want to be around that I won't mention because it's not fair. We've got a couple of intimate venues in Cardiff, the district rooftop that we're doing at the moment, Jacob's Roof Mark, uh, Jacob's Antique Market, which is literally an antiques market over four floors. That's got a basement and a roof. And we do, we take over the art gallery, take everything out. It's just a white, as you would imagine, any art gallery. We put yeah. a sound system in there, put a bar in there, and you have views all over the city, and it's a beautiful space. The rooftop that we do in district is a beautiful space. So I don't know is the honest answer. There's a new club called District that we do the roof of that the youngsters are going to, the 19, 18, 19, 20-somethings. And they're lined up to DJs I've never, ever, ever, ever heard of. Yeah, and I know. I, when you hear the names, you're like, huh? And, and they're filling the club. And that's the future of clubbing. So honestly, I we got to 25 years. I never thought I could do that. If we get past 25 years, I don't know. We got two more events this year. I want them to be fantastic and successful. And let's just see. Let's just see if there is more scope to do more, more opportunity. Because, you know, whenever one door closes, another one opens. And I thought it was all done with COVID. I never thought we would come back from COVID. Really? I never thought we would ever get back because you're in the middle of COVID. He had everyone newsflash. He thought it was over. Thought it was done. I thought. I thought life as we knew it was over. Helen was clapping her hands, saying, "Yeah, God, he found Jesus. Going, Thank God for COVID. He found Jesus." And then all of a sudden, somebody said, "Wait a second. Wait, wait, wait. He's talking about doing." Oh no! And, and, then, I, and then I started talking about socially distance events, and she was "Right? Oh my God, what are you talking about?" So who knows? I just, I honestly, if Helen had her way, we'd get to John Morales. We'd see out this year and finish on a high. 25 years. I'm never going to say never. I'm never going to say last ever again because you just never know. Because if you haven't been out for a bit and your feet get a bit itchy and an opportunity comes up, I want to take it and embrace it, I think. Who knows? Helen might be sitting there now watching the screen, shaking her head, saying, wait till you get home and wait till I tell you Oof. what's actually happening. Helen's been watching the show, everybody. I've been watching the show. She's been quietly putting in her two cents on the, on the back end. I've been watching some of the comments come in. She's a lovely person. And like to every great man is a even more of an amazing woman that backs him. Exactly. Keep him going. Yeah, yeah. Keep him straight. You know, as they say when you fall back, they become like that they put their hands they're, they're the ones that catch you. They're the she's the sensible my yin to my her, she's the yin to my yang, you know. And, it, and, it, and I'm, it, I'm and just it gonna say it. that as long as those people will come, there's yeah. no reason for you not to put the party on. That's and, and that's exactly right. If there's if there's an opportunity and there's a desire and there's something that we know we're gonna enjoy, then why not? 
but I'm not going to force it anymore. I'm not going to do it for the sake of doing it just because I think we have to. The rooftops of district are absolutely amazing. It's a beautiful, fantastic space that everybody can enjoy throughout the day from four o'clock till 10 o'clock. Um, going downstairs back into the, we did Young Pulse not so long ago and we did a late night one and the energy and enthusiasm of that, of that French Parisian crazy cat was just awe-inspiring. He sort of reminded us of us 30 years ago. Right, you know, he's, feelings, he's, yeah. he's got that and it was just, wow, he, he, it's unbelievable. So, who, I, all I can say is, who knows? I've got the fake party August. I've got John Morales in September. Then just, who knows after that? I, nothing who knows? Planned. Maybe Lenny will be coming to do New Year's. Who knows? Oh, no. Lenny might be back sometime soon. <laughs> you just never know. And that'd be lovely, wouldn't it? That'd be lovely because when we did that Studio 54, that sort of celebration to that last summer, it was a fantastic, fantastic little party. That was very well received. Oh yeah, I had a great and time. And you know, it, it's a, it's a lovely opportunity. I had such a great time playing. I just had a message now from my wife. This is live, live. You make me out to be a Debbie Downer, and what that means is that she's the one always in the background. No, 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 Helen. Helen let's Listen. let me clarify. No, no, Helen. You're the sensible one. No, no, You're no, the Helen. one that makes me think rationally about Honey, what we Helen, do. She is the one that's at the front of the DJ booth. The front of the crowd, in the middle of the crowd, dance, dancing like ten people when there's not that many people there, because yeah. she gets the music as well. She feels it and she gets it. She tells me what to play because she knows what I want to play and she knows what I should be playing and she knows and she tells me to go with what I love because she gets it and when she gets it, her friends around her get it and she is the party. So you're not a Debbie Downer hell. You are instrumental in the success of America. And, and I don't, and I've never talked highly enough about her and the support. Gareth Hopkins, my resident, has been there since the very first day. He played the first ever record and he still plays and turns up and has to travel a long way. And he looks after his daughter on his own. He runs his house on his own. He take, he runs a full-time job. Darren, he's a captain of industry, runs a big multinational company and still dedicates any time and effort into what I do. Quinny, the crazy man with the hat, people call him. He doesn't have to do anything for me, but he loves getting involved. He turns up before everybody else, leaves after everybody else. And it's just a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful way to run a night. And it's not a business. It's just a bit of fun. And we just love doing it. So you're not a Debbie Downer. You're just a voice of reason. And you're the sensible to my crazy. And it, and, it, and it works. And I think that's what needs to happen. Because if I just did what I wanted to do all the time, it'd be a bloody car, it'd be a car crash, you know? <laughs> She's your gazara as you're the gazinta. That's it. You She's the yin to the yang. Salt and pepper. That's what, that's what people call it. She's the reason to the fantasy. That's exactly right. This yeah. is why Law America was fantasy that became reality. reality. That's it, yeah. You know, you leave it where it is. And I That's will it. say this. I don't think there's anything more you could tell us that leaves us. I mean, your story speaks volumes all the way. I just know, thanks for having me, Lenny. It's been, it's been a pleasure. It's very, it's very cathartic to talk about the reasons, the timeline. Because you forget, and I'm very, you know, I'm very forgetful. I mix things up. I get timelines wrong. I say the wrong thing. 
But when you actually think about why you've done something and 30 years ago, almost more than 30 years ago, 33 33 plus years ago, I started playing music because I like music. You'd never thought 33 years ago that I'd be talking to back then was a legend at that time to me and talking about DJs that have played to me that have become friends. You know, you look at what Bobby and Steve have done for the UK music scene. Oh, shit. You know, CJ McIntosh, Paul Trouble Anderson, God rest his soul, Andy Ward, who's got an amazing thing going in Spain, who's been living in Spain for 15 years, who's started now to create the most amazing online content and taking a step back from DJing because he thought, you know what, this DJing life isn't for me. So... Yeah, it's been but an funny, absolute, but an funny, but funny, he yet going out to play. Yes. It's not for me, but you're going to go play again? Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, I'm going to go to Sunsea Beach, yeah, because it's nice. <laughs> Andy, if you know where I'm coming from, we all love you. We do, of course. <laughs> and like everybody else and all those people that I've mentioned, Stevie Saul Middleton and Jeff Montford were the two lads whose names I forgot who were instrumental in, a, in in Scotland. And Gareth Somerville, who's from Edinburgh, who's Athens of the North. He had a massive night in Edinburgh that would invite me up to play and he would come and play. And that network that we had and still have and still speak today, not as often as we should or we would like because we're all busy doing other things. But that's what this has got me. It's got me friends, lifelong friends, acquaintances, and that longevity, and still, I still love music. I, in fact, I saw a Natasha Diggs clip yesterday, and she played a clip of a re-edit of a song, and I was like, oh, my God. You know that feeling when, oh, my God, I haven't got I that. got to have this. What is that? What? So I messaged you, Natasha, please, please, please tell me what it is. She still hasn't messaged me. So, Natasha, if you're watching this, I need to know what that clip was. It's just a phenomenal re-edit of an old... Um, I can't even remember the title. You'll never find. I think it's, is it the Demi Sroussos? No, maybe I don't know. It's just outstanding. I didn't there's hear a, it. I don't even know which one. Is it? There's, there's, you'll never find. I'm not going to sing it because I, I can't love sing. Mike Mine, that's Lou Rawl. Yes, yeah, Lou Rawl. Is it? Yeah, it's a re-edit of that. Oh my goodness! There's a bongo timbale breakdown for what help, seems like. Help Craig find it. Is that, I wonder if that's a Kenny yeah. Side mix. I don't know who's remixed it. Lou Rawl. A love is it a love like mine? It's called. I think the you'll never find a love. You'll like never mine. find a love like mine. Yeah, there's a re-edit that Natasha Diggs played on a clip in a fantastic um, New York space that she was doing one of her dancerthons in. Oh my gosh, it's an absolute. That took me back thirty years to like when we would stand in record shops. I'll have that. Can I have that? And then they'd all sold out, and you'd have to write it down to try and get it again the next week. I had that feeling yesterday, only yesterday. Wow. See, you get that yeah. same feeling, the bug. Yeah. yeah, that's it. Thank you, Mr. Craig Bartlett. You gave us an education. Thank you all. Lovely to be here. You Good luck with us, this. Thank you. You gave us insight. You gave us the reason why we need to keep doing this and why we shouldn't do it at times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we also love the idea of the sportsmanship behind it, that you do care for the the artist and you care for the people that are the punters like you said getting them on in the club seeing everyone from the door to the end night 
and what the experience is. It's an instill very important thing for you. You're yep. not just slapping it together and going, here you oh, go. That's right. You no, still there's, care. There's, there's no point in doing that. It's, it's like when you buy bad food or you get bad service. There's no need for it. If you're paying for something and you're making an effort, you've got to do the best you can, I think. And that's, that goes from the welcome that you have on the door. And some would say Helen is quite strong. And you do need that on the door because it's a very challenging environment. But the experience has to be there for you, for you to come back, for what to want to come back. Because right. if it's good, if it's good, right, you'll come back. And I will come back. And so will your clubbers. And That's make so sure all of you come back to True House Stories each and every week to learn about all of these greats that we bring. Craig Bartlett, keep on trucking, baby, with that disco house sound. Cheers, Lenny. Love you. And I'll catch you all next week right here. Same place, same time. Bye-bye.